Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. 185 years ago this month, at Camp Monroe, the Seminole nearly scored a second route of soldiers akin to the decisiveness of the Dade Battle of late December 1835. In this case, on February 8, 1837, the outcome was a bit different. The Seminoles amassed a huge armed contingent to attack the U.S. encampment at Lake Monroe. It was a close-run battle. Had the troops obeyed their commander to replace their flints with wooden chips for training purposes the next day, had the troops not obeyed their commander to construct the breastworks the previous day, had the men shown less discipline in their firing, and had an army lieutenant not hurriedly run back to man a six-pound naval gun on a nearby Navy riverboat, the day might have belonged to the Seminole. Instead, the U.S. Army repulsed the Seminole for one of its rare, clear-cut victories in the Second Seminole War. The Museum of Seminole County History is commemorating this 185th anniversary of the Battle of Camp Monroe. Bennett Lloyd, the museum director, joined us last week to discuss this commemoration. In this podcast, he narrates a chronology of the battle and how the Army fought off the Seminole advance. Bennett Lloyd, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Glad to be here. The soldiers themselves said they thought there were about 800 Seminole at this battle. And to them, it must have felt like it. But, in fact, there were fewer. How many Seminole were at this battle? The estimate as far as how many of the Seminoles there were at the day, there are varying estimates. Frank goes with 300. Some go lower, more like 200 to 250. And then, of course, the soldiers of the day, which tend to exaggerate the Seminole forces as a rule, they were saying between 600 and 800 Seminoles. 300 is probably a very safe estimate. It's about the same number as the U.S. soldiers who were involved in the battle. Well, Bennett, 600 Seminoles would have been extraordinary, but 300 was also a huge number of Seminoles amassed in one place. This should have been a battle well remembered, but it's not. Why is that? I think the reason why it's not looked at today as a significant battle, even though it was back then, it ran in papers all over the country, and there were endorsements for the Cochrane's rifle and the Machinist, which was a national manufacturing magazine. More on the Cochrane in a bit. It was not looked at as pivotal by scholars later on because it was a United States victory. It almost, if the sailors hadn't rowed out to the Santee, which was the gunboat on Lake Monroe, and turned the six-pounder onto the Seminole flank at the end of the battle, the battle might have gone very, very differently. Seminoles were pouring so much shot into the fortification, which was another low fortification, exactly like you see in Dade's battle. They built a three-foot-high fence of logs. It was essentially the same situation, except in this case, they had the lake at the back, and a boat that could turn a cannon onto the Seminole flank that the Seminole couldn't reach. That turned the tide, and because it did not turn into a massacre like Dade's battle was, it was dismissed. It was just part of the United States' inexorable advance at that point. It did not have that sweeping legacy that Dade's battle did. It's certainly an ironic thing to have more cachet in a battle loss than a battle victory. Help us understand 
that's actually true in a lot of scholarship. The United States is rather unique in how it deals with its military losses. I think that part of that is the legacy of how the United States deals with the way it loses battles. Very often, and you see this in the Seminole Wars, you see it in the Civil War, and I should caveat this with saying this is mainly 19th century romanticism. They look at them as noble struggles against savage foes and insurmountable odds, and these are martyred heroes is, is how they treat it most often. And that in turn spurs them to increasing the funding for the war efforts and uh, getting more recruits and volunteers. I think sort of the last gasp of this is that idea of remember the Maine, which spurred uh, the Spanish-American War at the end of the century, where even though it wasn't a battle loss, they started taking this situation where a ship exploded and turning it into martyrdom and a cause for upset and renewed vigor in the war effort. That plays a lot into the way the Dade battle is viewed, the Cove of the Wislacoochee, that heroic stand by the folks at uh, Camp Izzard. All of that, I think, feeds into this idea. And because the battle at Camp Monroe was a victory. They held the ground. They established the fort. The Seminoles never successfully attacked Fort Mellon. It was huge in the capitulation period as the place where the Seminoles wound up congregating. Because it was a victorious symbol, I sort of fell by the wayside. All right. Well, what was the army doing there in the first place? The army was there as a part of Jessup's renewed campaign. By late 1836, 1837, the whole thing was in Jessup took it over because he was a quartermaster. And his goal was getting things in order, getting shipments and troops where they needed to be. He saw that this was lacking, and so he took on the command, hoping that he could fix this problem. He instituted a multi-pronged campaign southward, and his goal was somewhat different because his goal ostensibly, at least from what I've read, is not necessarily removal, where Andrew Jackson and Van Buren, they had predicated this whole thing on removing them to the Oklahoma Territory, where Jessup, his goals were a little more focused. I don't want to say short-sighted, but they were short-term goals. His goal was to force them into peace talks. The way he wanted to do that was to engage them on as many fronts as possible as they go down. And even though some of the campaigns proved disastrous, Lake Okeechobee wound up being essentially, even though it was a territorial victory, it wound up being a political and morale loss because all the Seminoles escaped. The U.S. had all these casualties to deal with afterward. His goal was to force them into peace talks, and that wound up being pretty successful. It resulted in the capitulation talks, and up until Poinsett refused the terms that Jessup had outlined with the Seminoles, everything was pointing towards an end to the war. Secretary Poinsett wound up falling back on that old staple that we were there to remove the Seminoles, not to make peace with them. In this area, what was General Jessup's approach to Seminole removal operations? He wanted to send his columns down the east side of Florida, and the east side of Florida was pretty much unexplored by Europeans ever since Anglo-America. During the territorial period, the United States did very little with East Florida, and their maps only really went down to Lake Monroe. They knew there was a lake there. It was called Lake Grant before then because on a grant uh, to some British fellows who did some logging over on the Volusia County side of Lake Monroe, but it was very little explored by the United States. And Jessup wanted to force the Seminoles as far south down the peninsula as possible, and he couldn't do that as long as they held that eastern side of Florida. So he sent his troops down the St. John's River in order to establish a beachhead 
as far south as the steamships could get, and that was Lake Monroe. He then focused on exploring the rest of the river further south, seeing if they could figure out where it began. And we have a couple of great maps from Davidson of the lake and also Peyton, who wound up discovering Lake Peyton, which was renamed Lake Jessup later on, and is still Lake Jessup to this day. These explorations were predicated on the idea that Jessup wanted to establish a huge supply depot over here and a means of pouring troops into the interior of central Florida. The battle for the Seminoles was essentially their attempt to prevent this. They didn't want the U.S. Army down this side of Florida. They had a lot of cattle that were here. We have on Peyton's and Davidson's maps, we have cow pens that are outlined and encampments that are shown. After that battle and the completion of Fort Mellon, there was really no recourse the Seminoles could have. Fort Mellon was not like, uh, say, Fort King. It wasn't what you think of as these frontier forts with the little four walls and the two little bastions and whatnot. It was a massive, massive complex encompassing a huge, huge acreage. Uh, I think almost 40 acres, uh, yards and yards and yards, hundreds and hundreds of yards of walls, uh, which met with the lakeshore. They had a large, long pier where they could unload several steamships. They would send them in pairs or triples, and there would be several steamships on Lake Monroe at a given time. It was designed for a garrison of hundreds, like 450 regular garrison, and then up to 5,000 men in temporary accommodations. They had buildings, warehouses, many of those we have records of them being scavenged for what became Mellonville, which is now incorporated into the city of Sanford. It was essentially the huge, huge eastern military outpost that fed and clothed and supplied the army for every eastern campaign that they did from 1837 onward. In the Second Seminole War, what set Camp Monroe or Camp Mellon apart? As opposed to a smaller fort like Fort King, which was built in peacetime and was mainly about establishing a presence and making sure to sort of pacify the surrounding countryside, Fort Mellon was a wartime fort with a wartime purpose. It was designed to repulse assault. It had outer forts, Fort Reed, in order to give warning miles away through the use of signals in order to prevent it being besieged because the Seminoles were amongst the rare native groups who actually would besiege a fortification. It was convenient for them if they thought it would benefit them. It was designed to hold the supplies for a wartime effort, and it was built to serve a wartime function. How did this contrast with Fort Christmas? Fort Christmas was another one of those little uh, small presence forts. Fort Christmas was established as a camp, and it was only temporarily occupied. It was occupied for all of about six months. And this was as the column was heading south, they would establish forts. And these forts were safe havens for the supply trains because you needed to be inside of a fort at night if you didn't want to get raided. And they were also temporary accommodations for the soldiers that were safe from assault because Camp Monroe was vulnerable. Fort Mellon was not. And so in similar case, you would establish a fort. And this is a tradition that actually goes back to Roman warfare. When you would make camp, you would build a fort and you would occupy and live in that fort until the camp was broken down. These smaller forts, we have several. There was Fort Christmas, which is still Fort Christmas. Fort Gatlin became Orlando. Fort Maitland is now Maitland, Florida. 
all of these little towns, and this is one reason why the Second Seminole War is so pivotal for Central Florida history, were established during this campaign by General Jessup. And they were these forts that were leading the army southward, these different branches of the army in column, as they progressed toward what eventually became the Battle of Lake Okeechobee, that sort of pivotal end conflict. So, for the record, what was Fort Mellon established to do? Fort Mellon was established as a supply depot. It was the furthest south that steamships could get along the St. John's River. This is where all of these heavy-laden steamships would offload all of the soldiers' supplies, and it was the central hub for transport all throughout the rest of Central Florida. All these little forts were receiving supplies from Fort Mellon. All of the rations went through Fort Mellon. All of the ammunition went through Fort Mellon. Uh, And all of the Seminoles that were going from East Florida to Oklahoma went through Fort Mellon. They would gather here. There were hundreds and hundreds of them, even during the capitulation and even throughout the rest of the war. They would be gathered here awaiting shipment, essentially, westward toward Tampa Bay or uh, like port, and then they would go over to Mobile by ship, and then they would go from there overland to Oklahoma Territory. This was a shipping center, and it was vital for the United States war effort on the eastern half of Florida. How long was this fort, or its successor, designed to last? The second fort was designed to last a while. I place a little caveat there because the first fort was indeed burned down after it was left by the United States. The United States, thinking that the capitulation had worked and they were going to have a peace treaty, they did abandon Fort Mellon in, I believe it was July of 1837, the same year it was built. The Seminoles promised, okay, we won't burn it down while you're away, and of course they did. So they got back and rebuilt the fort in November. Essentially exactly the same. The two maps that we have, for they show pretty much the exact same outline of the fort, but it was burnt down once in a non-combat situation by the Seminoles who did not want the U.S. Army to return. After they rebuilt it in November, it lasted through the end of the war, and we actually have evidence of Fort Mellon being referenced in post-returns from the Civil War. So even if the fort didn't exist at that point, the station of Fort Mellon did exist during the occupation of Florida in the Civil War. For the overall war effort, how important was establishing and then reestablishing forts in this vicinity? You essentially see the threat to the Seminoles play out after the Seminoles fail to neutralize the beachhead. Once the army builds the fort, they begin pouring in troops and supplies in the hundreds and in the thousands, and they send these columns southward to engage the Seminoles as much as possible in uh, pitched battles, which is what the United States is going for. They want decisive victories that force the Seminoles to seed territory and seed crops, seed cattle to them, seed E-E-D-E, not seed S-E-E-D. But they want the Seminoles to give up all of these resources because the Seminoles don't have these resources. If they can't grow crops on this land, if they can't take these herds of cattle, then they can't fight a war. And we see this idea of a pitched battle fall away after Jessup leaves command because the pitched battle winds up not working. The Seminoles come to talks, but they still want a peace agreement with a reservation in the south of Florida, to which Jessup agrees this is probably a good idea, but he sends the terms to Secretary of War William Poinsett. And once again, he rejects it and says that Jessup needs to round up the Seminoles and send them off to Oklahoma. Jessup complies with his orders. He rounds up as many as he can and sends them off to Oklahoma, and he goes back to being a quartermaster. Poinsett's goals and his are very different in that respect. Fort Mellon is itself a case for why Seminoles needed to 
not have Fort Mellon there because it became that beachhead. It became that supply depot. And from there on, the U.S. Army was pouring into central Florida and just forcing the Seminoles to concede more and more of that territory until they backed them up against Lake Okeechobee and entered into that decisive battle. If the army establishes a beachhead from which they can safely unload troops and resources, then there's no chance of reclaiming that territory. They need to nip that in the bud. It was late December of 1836 when they reached Camp Monroe, what they later called Camp Monroe. Also, it's referenced as Camp Fanning in a couple of documents. Fanning was the overall commander of that expedition. Essentially, they were exploring. There were several scouting expeditions, mostly run by the Creeks. Paddy Carr and his Creek contingent of about 50 fellows out of the, I think, 800 or so he brought down. 50 of them came down with Fanning to Camp Monroe, and they were all scouting. They were trying to figure out, okay, are there Seminoles? Where are they? What are the trails? What are the landmarks? How can we get this beachhead and make it useful to pierce into the interior? And there are some misses. There are two main steamships that are ferrying back and forth, both supplies and letters and battle reports back to General Jessup. After they draw these maps, Peyton goes down and establishes that, okay, there is a secondary lake here, and the river continues. They find several seminal encampments, but they look abandoned. They find a couple of free blacks who they impress into service, and their loyalty is somewhat questionable, uh, <laughs> naturally, but they try and get intelligence. It's mainly intelligence gathering for the first few weeks, and they come to the conclusion that uh, there aren't really that many Seminoles around, and that leads them to become a little bit complacent. There is at least one story of a couple of men just going on a scouting joyride, and they're not supposed to be back for a couple of days, and then they actually come upon these advancing Seminoles who the day before are trying to approach Fort Mellon and see what the Army's got going on. So the Seminoles in turn are trying to see, okay, we've seen scouts running around our area. We need to see what the Army is doing over here. So we don't have a lot of the story on the counter scouts and what they saw and what they gathered. All we know is that by February 6th or 7th, the Seminoles are en route to try and recapture this area. The leadership over at the U.S. Army, they take it seriously, but they don't take it seriously. On the one hand, they feel that if things are getting too lax and they want to drill their men more, I don't know that they, just from the notes, I don't know that they take the threat of the Seminole approach as seriously as they should have, because once again, you have Lynch's account where the commanding officers instruct them, hey, we're going to be drilling tomorrow so that you are combat ready when the Seminoles get here. Put wood flints in your muskets so that we can drill tomorrow. And Lynch responds that it is fortunate that most of the men did not follow this order. <laughs> which A, speaks to their opinion of their commanding officers, and B, speaks to the assessment of the officers about how close the Seminoles are and what an actual threat they were. The next morning at about 4 a.m., the Seminoles start firing into the encampment, and it's described how the rifle balls scatter the fire that the officers are sitting around, and it's miraculous that the officers are not injured, and a suppressive fire is kept up for the next four hours by the Seminoles. Once again, the officers did say to make a breastwork. The breastwork was about three feet high. It consisted of stacked logs around this encampment. The encampment itself was probably 100 yards by 100 yards square, 
and you have the different companies, each arrayed on the three sides, and the back is to the lake, and the back is open. On the outer perimeter, you have the soldiers' tents, and in the interior, you have the officers' tents, like the kitchen tent, and all the supply wagons, because they were still guarding something like 25,000 pounds of supplies in these wagons that were dropped off by the steamships in preparation for this massive troop deployment. The soldiers had started building Fort Mellon at that point as well. They had finished the pickets, quote unquote. In this case, it's difficult. I mean, a, a picket is just like a, a watch post, essentially, right? But they had constructed essentially a rough outline of what would be the main fort. So there is what amounts to a gatehouse, and that would be on the site of where the county services building is today along Millenville Avenue and 2nd Street. And there was essentially a gatehouse there with two winged bastions that may have been covered. In the first image of the fort, they are not, and the second image is less clear. So we don't know if those were blockhouses per se or if they were just winged bastions the way you would see in, say, Fort Caroline 300 years before. And a couple of other Seminole War forts have those winged bastions similarly. The breastwork is essentially just a wood fence, a log fence. Once again, it's about three feet high. It's just consistent of stacked trees that they've cut down and laid on top of each other and cleaned off the branches. Essentially, it's just something to hide behind. The stakes pointing outward, you don't really see that in these kinds of fortifications. There's not a whole lot of time to do all that work. And what is really the point, aside from an intimidation factor, it's useless to waste that time and energy on it. The breastwork ran around the infantry tents. I mentioned that they were arrayed, like it was like 100 yard by 100 yard square and the soldiers' tents are arranged on the outside. The breastwork would have been just a few feet out from those tents in 100-yard by 100-yard square, except one side is open on the back side where the lake is. Between the time that they had scouted the army encampment and arrived, the soldiers had built this breastwork. And like I said, that was the day before. Fanning had ordered that the day before, right before he told them to put wooden flints in their muskets. What do we make of this guy, Fanning? The accounts say that Fanning was an extremely capable officer and that he was somewhat of a rigid disciplinarian. But apart from that, there is no assessment of the competence of his orders. I think it's probably soldiers being wise and not saying <laughs> what they really think about their commanding officer. I do notice that in some accounts, Lynch is once again occurring, being the one that comes to the forefront. As soon as Captain Mellon is dead, they make no bones about insulting his character and saying that there was no worse officer who was never mourned by his soldiers. <laughs> but Vinton and Fanning, who were the more overarching commanding officers, I believe Fanning had seniority and Vinton was the senior on the ground. But they are a few other accounts of the battle. There is, of course, the battle report that was sent in. Lynch is one of the most detailed. There's an account by an anonymous source in Philadelphia newspaper later on after the war that was probably a kid who enlisted underage. Also, there is an account that was not at the battle, but that talks about the aftermath, and that is an account of a surgeon named Mott, who winds up describing some of the accoutrements, some of the graves where Captain Mellon is buried eventually, and what becomes the little graveyard for the fort, because 14 people do die over the course of the fort's existence. I think Mellon is the only one that was killed in battle, but there are 14 deaths at the fort, and he described the early building of this structure. What's the timeline on those troops who left the fort, and how fortuitous was it that they did? That day, February 7th, the two soldiers who went out probably drinking, and there was a fellow named Thomas 
who came in, they enjoyed staying with Patty Carr's Creeks. The sailors also stayed with Patty Carr's Creeks, and we get the impression from what accounts we have that it was probably because the Creeks were much more lax and they drank at night and partied and all that fun stuff. And the Creeks stayed in a copse of trees that was between the army encampment and the unfinished fort. They were actually the first hit by the Seminoles when they were coming in, and they retreated back into the breastwork. And then within the first 10 minutes of the battle, Seminoles had advanced, hit the breastwork, realized, oh, there's something that we have to get over, retreated back. One of the Seminoles describes that he was crawling along the breastwork, spotted a flash of blue in a gap in the logs, fired through it, and that's how Captain Mellon died very, very early in the engagement. And then from there, the Seminoles retreated, formed a crescent around this little square, and just started peppering shots into the encampment. By the end of it, there was not a tent that was not hit. They described it as being shredded and riddled with bullets. The soldiers draped their coats along the fence line so that those gaps weren't visible anymore. And then they ducked behind it, and there is actually a loading procedure for when you're lying down. And they would load lying down. They would fire back from the top of this three-foot breastwork, and they just stayed low for the next four hours. Now, to his credit, this this fellow Thomas did wind up commanding the detachment that rode out to the Santee, and he is the one who eventually turned the cannon on the Seminole flank as well. So he's quite a character himself. He was the wayward scout who went off and got drunk in the bushes before the battle. Given the size and intent of the Seminole, had the army been totally unprepared, they might have been annihilated. If Fanning had not ordered them to build the breastworks, then the Seminoles would have had free reign to shoot whoever they wanted. The breastworks saved the soldiers because they had something to hide behind, these thick logs. The balls were passing through the tents like nothing. So if the breastwork had not been there, then the soldiers would have been sitting ducks in the open. They had cleared that area of the beach. There would really have been nothing stopping the Seminoles from committing another Dade-like massacre. The breastwork for Dade was much, much smaller than this one. This one, it's still piled logs, but once again, it's 100 yards across on all sides. There were about 300 U.S. troops and then 50 Creek scouts. And so it would have been a couple of hundred dudes who were assigned that duty at a given time. Going by what I said before, because it was not a massacre, because it was a victory in a sense, I think it falls by the historical wayside, even though it wound up being hugely significant from a strategic standpoint. The battle isn't remembered as much because it was a U.S. victory. When that fellow, uh, one Thomas, he rode out to the Santee, which was the steamship at anchor in the lake. He and a group of Navy fellows in our artillery group, they took one of the boats out. They rowed under fire. One of them was injured during the trip. He rowed out to the Santee. They had a six-pound gun on the Santee, and he started laying fire into Seminole's right flank. And eventually, over the course of about an hour or so, not quite sure of the time because the soldiers aren't quite up front with exact times, but they said he started laying fire in consistently and repeatedly, and eventually the Seminoles abandoned that flank. They didn't want to face the cannon with the canister shot. Because of that, Seminoles retreated as day broke. They hadn't succeeded in penetrating the fort and causing meaningful casualties, and 
in the daylight, the soldiers could actually see where to shoot. They might see that, oh, there aren't 800 of them like we thought. It would not have been in the Seminoles' interest to continue the fight at that point. A few of them wanted to, but Fanning belayed that. They did go out and check for Seminole casualties. They said they found several blood trails, but no bodies. They estimated that they probably hit 14 of them or so, as far as casualty counts go, just based on what they found. But Fanning forbade any pursuits because he did not want the few men that he had who were supposed to be building this fort, he didn't want any of them getting ambushed in a pursuit. At that point, they didn't know the Seminoles were feigning retreat either. I'm impressed that the soldiers fired from a Navy boat. It would have been a Navy boat. And like I said, this is a very much an instance of early combined arms actions, which the Second Seminole War was a very good example of cooperative use of Navy and Army and the, the different branches. Although a joint action, the Army was in command. Essentially, from what we gather in the accounts, because Fanning was senior and in charge, everyone was following his orders, whether it was the captain of the Santee or whether it was the artillerists or whether it was the dismounted dragoons or whether it was Paddy Carr's Creeks. He was regarded as a disciplinarian. So because he held that kind of sway, the combined actions worked and were apparently coordinated enough that it resulted in an effective repulsion of the Seminoles. With Fanning an overall command of ground and lake surface forces, Fanning was able to command the entire group and water Lieutenant Thomas to man the ship guns. Second Lieutenant George Thomas, and that was a direct order by Fanning to go ahead and get to the steamboat and get its six-pounder firing grape shot. Seminoles withdraw and Fanning forbids pursuit. The soldiers continue to build the fort, and they wind up naming it after Captain Mellon, who died in that first 10 minutes of the battle. Our good friend Chris Kimball says that an innovative rifle was given to Captain Mellon. Captain Mellon, of course, was killed in the first 10 minutes of the battle, but the innovative rifle given to him saw some action. Tell us about that. It was Cochrane's revolving turret rifle. It was employed at the Battle of Camp Monroe. There was an endorsement that was given to it by the fellow using it at the battle. He said that, I used this in Florida on February 8th when the Seminoles attacked us, and it fired like a charm, and it saved my life. And you can find that in the public domain if you Google search it. It was essentially an attempt at an interchangeable system of loading. So you would pull the cylinder, which had nine rounds in it. It rotated on a turret. You would pack them in wax so that the water didn't get in, and then you would load this turret onto your gun, and it would rotate. You would have nine shots, and then you would change out the turrets. And it was actually more closely related to what we know of as the Colt Revolver. They were both developing these inventions at the same time, and they were both trying to sell to the Army. The idea being that the Army wanted a means to more effectively load its weaponry and fire for longer periods. And so a Colt came up with that revolving cylinder, and Cochrane came up with this revolving turret. Well, we all know about Colt's revolving cylinder, but I think it's news to most of us about Cochrane's revolving turret. Apparently, he got the short end of the stick in predominance of the weapon. Cochrane lost out because there was a tendency on the Cochrane rifle to chain fire. Since it was a turret, a lot of those little uh, chambers were facing your own allies because they radiated outward along this turret. It was more closely related to the cylinder revolvers that wound up making 
their not really a debut, but they wound up uh, becoming the standard in Civil War combat. What was the purpose of the Cochrane? Was it a universal rifle or a specialized piece? It was meant to be just a universal military gun, like the Hall rifle or the, the musket, the Charlevilles, or the 1916 Harper's Ferry flintlocks. It was meant just to be a replacement gun that was used in standard warfare. But the Army was doing a lot of testing of these experimental weapons during the Second Seminole War. It was one of the reasons why the war was so expensive. And they went with the revolver instead. They funded Colt's idea over Cochran's. You know, if he had fixed the chain fire issue and <laughs> wasn't shooting their own guys. Do you have any images of what this thing looked like? Some photos that were sent to me by the National Rifle Association Museum because we were looking into this gun. It appeared in the Journal of the Mechanics Institute, Volume 9 of 1837. The NRA Museum has a couple of these in their collections. How many were there in the Florida War for this potentially breakthrough weapon? Just one, and they were negligible in their effect on the war. Now, they had a great effect on the morale of those troops. Keep in mind, these were the same troops who, just the day before, had been told to put wooden flints on their guns because they were going to be drilling that day. Fortunately, according to Lynch, a lot of them disregarded that advice. But the idea that this gun was functioning throughout the battle was nothing to sneeze at as far as they were concerned. It was important to have something that was reliable and repeating and returning fire throughout this engagement. The engagement lasted from the early, early morning hours until... Uh, you know, a little after dawn. Uh, it was through about 8.30. So it was several hours of this engagement that this gun was firing. A lot of these Cochrans did come out for the private sector afterward. They were usually like individually machined. So there was less of a risk of chain firing. The parts were more exact. So you do still see revolving turret rifles in antique shows and whatnot. So there were some of them manufactured. It's just that as far as mass production goes, it was too unreliable, too dangerous, and the army felt that Colt's cylinder mechanism had far better potential. I think I understand, but what is a chain fire? Oh, so a chain fire is one way of misfiring when you have a gun with multiple barrels or multiple chambers. It can occur with revolvers too. It's just that all of those chambers are facing toward the enemy, so it's not as deadly uh, if cylinder revolver chain fires. The spark that ignites the powder can sometimes jump between chambers. If the powder sparks and fires and the bullet starts flying and some of those sparks get into the other chambers of the gun, whether because the wind is blowing the wrong way or whether because there's an inherent flaw in the mechanism, then it will light the powder in the other chambers that are not supposed to be firing at the time and they will ignite and fire their projectile prematurely. So some guns actually do this intentionally. A good example is the naval knock guns that the British employed during the Napoleonic Wars. Those had such a kickback that they were more likely to injure the person firing it than they were to clear the deck of the opposing ship, but they still employed them because they were scary guns that sent a lot of lead in that singular direction, because that was the goal. Volley guns are a whole genre of purposeful chain fire. Your intention is to light as many chambers off at the same time as possible. But in a cylinder gun where you are attempting to fire one shot at a time and just save on the time it takes to reload so that you can just change out cylinders or turrets, then chain fire is very bad. Okay, back to the fort. When is it finished? 
they eventually complete the fort within the next couple of weeks, have something that's good enough to withstand assault. And there is a sketch by, I believe it was Vinton, who made the sketch of the breastwork surrounding a central building and then some miscellaneous quarters and houses that are being built along the sides there with some tents out front. By the time the capitulation hits, uh, around May of 1837, they've completed an outer wall that encompasses the entirety of the military tract there. It's like a quarter mile long and another eighth of a mile deep from the lakeshore. It encompasses good portion of what is now a an entire residential district and the downtown county services building in Sanford now. How did the purpose of the fort change in the months after the battle? They put everything on hold, but what Fort Mellon did during that interim was they were receiving Seminoles because to the U.S. Army was a capitulation. That's why they called it a capitulation. The Seminoles were giving up land. They were showing up in families, and the Army was actually trying to actively draw them in as well. And Fanning was still in command. He and Kawakuchi started playing. He authorized that Kawakuchi and the Creeks could start playing ball games in the fort in order to help draw these Seminoles in because the Seminoles were avid sports fans, right? Stickball is the... Seminole pastime. The little brother of war, they loved playing at Kawakuchi, was an avid sportsman, and Paddy Carr was also pretty highly renowned. Paddy Carr was often attributed as more of a horse racer, but he did play stickball, the Burr Creek equivalent. These games were similar, and the Creeks and Seminole both played them. Each player would have two netted sticks, or if women were playing, they would use the women would use their hands. And essentially, the field could be designated with a central post or with opposing posts. There were different methods of playing depending on what band you were talking to, because the Creeks and the Seminoles, they weren't necessarily united by anything other than that name Seminoles and their mutual desire to not go to Oklahoma. They were Muscogees, Miccosukees, Yamasis, Appalachians, all these different peoples. But they all have the universal language in the form of this game. And so we know that Paddy Carr and his Creeks played the Seminoles and the Seminoles played each other through late May and early June of 1837 during this capitulation, and it drew in hundreds of Seminoles. There were an estimated 2,500 Seminoles encamped either in the fort or around it by June of 1837. What were the Seminole doing at Camp Mellon? As treaty negotiations came on, they were either going to be going to Oklahoma or they were going to be getting issued rations. It all depended on the terms of the treaty agreement. Wound up that the treaty fell through once again because of Poinsett. Jessup rounded up about 800 of them successfully and shipped them off. Everybody wants to know, was Osceola there during this time? He there. He supposedly played stickball against Patty Carr, according to Mott, I believe, was the source of that. And Frank mentions it. And these were <laughs> the giants of their day in sports world. And the officers were invited to watch these games. We have records of them invited to watch. Fort Mellon, uh, knowledge of what Osceola did, we're trying still to track that down. We've been poring over a lot of secondary sources, and it's been very difficult to find their sources in the primary documents that they cite. So Osceola at Fort Mellon, we know that he was there at one point, but it's very difficult for us to figure out when and exactly what he was doing. Where did they put these Seminole encampments outside of Fort Mellon? Most of them are outside the fort, and actually on Davidson's map, he lists a lot of those encampments. The Army keeps tabs on where they are, but when the capitulation falls through, Jessup rounds up those that he can, but the rest of them flee. That is in June-July, the Army 
abandons the fort during the peak summer months, so the army doesn't want to be there anyway. It's central Florida. There's malaria. There's typhoid. There's It's called the sick season amongst army surgeons for a reason. They abandon the fort. Osceola is stated as being among them, but like I said, not sure personally because Osceola was said to be everywhere and Coacachi and King Philip were said to be everywhere. Coacachi and King Philip, though, were local to this area. King Philip had a town, King Philip's town, on the head of Lake Harney and Jessup in that area. Supposedly, the Seminoles promise not to burn it down as they leave, and then they immediately burn it down. And the U.S. Army comes back in November after all the negotiations fall through and renew all those efforts. They put everything back the way it was, send troops down, and the war proceeds as before. From a strategic standpoint, the fort was far more important after the battle and often during the peacetime or the brief interludes that they had because this was where the army centered everything. So when the Seminoles capitulated, when some of them would come in and express a willingness to abide by the orders and go to Oklahoma, this is where if they were on this side of Florida, this is where they would be shipped. This is where they would stay and get rations and food. Sometimes they would abscond as soon as they got enough supplies and rejoin the war effort. But this was sort of the essential way station, the essential outpost in that regard. And as I said, it persisted after the war. It was occupied by state militias and then later on by regular troops again during the Civil War. And there were still fears about Seminoles and Indian raids well into the 1840s and 50s. The last Seminoles were not cleared from central Florida until 1854 during a militia raid on a settlement at Lake Apopka, which had persisted even past the supposed expulsion of the Seminoles from the area. What made this fort, Fort Mellon? A strategic site. This was the furthest south that steamships could get, and steamships were the heavy haulers of the day. If you want to ship 10,000 pounds of supplies downriver, you're not going to do that on a horse's saddlebag. And the wagon trains over those long distances are especially vulnerable to Seminoles. Seminoles love raiding U.S. Army trains. What was the geographic obstruction to sending supplies by river further? There was a berm between Lake Monroe and Lake Jessup that could only really be passed by a dugout canoe or loading raft. So Fort Lane winds up being established on the shore of Lake Harney, and they get some smaller shipments over the river. But as far as the big steamships go, they can't get past the berm to Lake Jessup. That eventually is dug out by the Army Corps of Engineers, I believe, in the 30s. It was was a natural formation. We think of the Native Americans as unified these days because mainly because of the Red Power movement of the 1970s, which gave them the united front to protest their issues and their Supreme Court victories and annuity payments and all of that. Those negotiations were hashed out during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But back then, they weren't really a united front, and the Seminoles were actually on the wrong end of a civil war in the previous period. The War of 1812 coincided with a civil war called the Red Stick Wars. The Creeks, essentially what we know as the Creeks, again, they, they weren't all Creeks. That's just what the British and the Anglo-Americans called them. They were different people groups. They were divided over whether to support the United States or to support England, or whether they needed their own sovereign. The prophets, Tecumseh, wanted to build a red nation. In almost a European sense, if they had national borders, then they can fend off these national threats. The Seminoles, they threw in their lot with the red sticks, and the red sticks were the ones who wanted war with the United States and who sided with the British during the War of 1812. They were eventually defeated by Andrew Jackson at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. So Andrew Jackson has long had a 
grudge against the Seminoles. Since the War of 1812, he's been fighting the Seminoles, and then he came down during the first Seminole War, which was really an extension of the War of 1812, because the British gave the Seminoles a fort on the Apalachicola River and a bunch of munitions and supplies and said, okay, build your nations, we're out. Andrew Jackson, at the behest of a lot of Georgia planters who did not want that fort there, blocking their access to the Gulf of Mexico, wound up destroying that fort and essentially starting the first Seminole War in 1816. There's a long, long history of the grudge between the United States and the Seminoles, and also between the Seminoles and the Creeks, who were the white sticks, the ones who sided with the United States. So it's not very difficult for them to recruit Creeks because while we may think of the Creeks as unified, they were far from it. Knowing that the writing was on the wall, the Creeks were also hoping, the Creeks who remained, were hoping that service to the United States might exempt them from these policies. In large part, they did not, but there were also other perks of being in service to the United States. The soldiers consistently complained that the Creeks were paid more than them. The Creeks got spoils from their engagements, whether it was in munitions or supplies or slaves. They were able to keep booty, essentially. There were other perks for fighting with the United States, and hiring 800 Creeks to do their scouting for them against people that they knew very well and knew how they would fight was a no-brainer as far as the U.S. was concerned, if they could do it. We know there was an 800 Creek regiment that came down and fought at the Battle of Wahoo Swamp. How many went over to Fort Mellon? Fifty of them were dispersed between different army units, and they had contracts, essentially. So they fight for a certain number of months, and then their contract would be up. And just like a soldier, they could re-enlist if they wanted more stuff, or the army eventually cracked down and wound up denying them re-enlistment if my memory serves correctly, because the soldiers were protesting and they were getting ready to offload the creeks in the same way that they were doing the Seminoles. Okay, Bennett, significant battle, a rare U.S. Army victory, and you aren't able to do a living history interpretation battle, recreation, so far at this time. Why is that? The battle itself, we don't run because we don't have the, the sport and the setting would be wrong. So how are you handling the Battle of Camp Monroe? We are showcasing the encampments and we're describing the circumstances of the war and we will talk about the battle, but there is no battle reenactment per se, because I don't think we could do it justice. Could you do it somewhere else, maybe nearby? Possibility is always out there and we are consistently working on it. There might be another option of finding a like location that we could perform the battle. For instance, I think the Pioneer Museum just did the Battle of Black Point, even though they're uh, 100 miles away from Black Point. <laughs> but still, if we can faithfully portray it, I would love to put on the battle itself. But that would be contingent upon finding a site where we could faithfully portray it, even if it isn't the actual lakeshore. All right. We say Camp Monroe. We say Fort Mellon. In the big picture, what's the significance of these fortifications and their place in the Seminole War? I think that this fort is almost a tragic reminder of what happens when peace fails. I've mentioned earlier that I think its contribution to history is as much in the peacetime capitulation and all of that as it is in wartime. I think that image of thousands of Seminoles watching these ball games with U.S. officers looking on, it's kind of a somber look at what might have been had people been a little more reasonable and had points that not decided that the place where the Seminoles was in Oklahoma and that the negotiations were fruitless. In some ways, it's a look at what might have been. It's a look at the U.S. Army's resilience 
as far as the battle is concerned and what they learned from previous engagements, because you know that three hours in, they probably knew exactly what the stakes were, having known what happened to Dade and his command by that point. There are many ways that you can look at that history and it any way that you view it, whether it's as the establishment of Anglo-American settlement in the region, because that's where people settled once the area was cleared, whether it's as the uh, seat of uh, what became Seminole County later on, whether it's as that peacetime look at how there might have been cooperation, a- any of those ways, it's it's worthwhile to examine Fort Mellon and its contributions. That's a great summation, and we're out of time. Thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. My pleasure. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.